Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to a bonus episode of the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. This is the very first time we're doing something that uh, we're calling Ask Carrie, and I'm Carrie Newhoff, and it's so good to have you along. We're doing this just to kind of celebrate and mark the very first year anniversary of the podcast. It was a year ago this month that we started things back with episode one and Andy Stanley. And a whole bunch of episodes later, here we are. We are still alive and thriving, actually, and having a really good time. And you guys, like you've heard me say many, many times, you're the ones who make it awesome. I mean, with your ratings, your reviews, the fact that you share this with other leaders. But the best part is the interaction with you. So I just want to say thank you. And we do get a lot of questions around here. You guys ask me questions pretty much every day. And It's one thing to answer one-on-one, which I will do as time permits from time to time. It's getting busier all the time, but uh, we just thought we'd collect a bunch of questions because if you've got the question, chances are other people have exactly the same question. And uh, you know that, I know that. And so we just thought, well, let's put one of these episodes together. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to do this this Thursday and then again next Thursday. And again, if you subscribe, it's really, really easy to make sure that you don't miss an episode. This bonus episode is brought to you by my brand new book. It's called Lasting Impact, and it's available for pre-order now. And I am just so excited to get this resource into your hands and the hands of many, many leaders and the hands of people on your team. It's called Lasting Impact, Seven Powerful Conversations That Will Help Your Church Grow. I wrote it just because I think we all kind of struggle with the same thing, and we're in a period of massive change, and we're all trying to figure out what to do. So the book is really seven conversations that you can have with your team. And we tackle issues like church growth and why people are attending church less often, even if they are coming to church, um, the health of a leadership team. I also tackle why are high-capacity leaders not engaging in your mission, Uh, why do young adults walk away from the church, Um, cultural trends that you might be missing as a church leader, and of course, the whole issue of change, right? Like, what are we actually willing to change? Those are the seven chapters that comprise the book, and if you order it right now, you get some special bonuses that are going to go away really, really soon, like within a matter of weeks. So if you order today, and you can do that at lastingimpactbook.com, you'll get the free audio book, I narrate it, you will also get a free e-version, an EPUB version of the book, and you'll get access to an exclusive webinar where I show you how to walk your team through conversations just like this. So the other thing that's really cool is if you are one of the first thousand people to buy the book, you will get a limited edition Hatch Show print. That's a letterpress print uh, of the book. It's got uh, it's got um, some cover art. It's got quotes from the book. And it's frameable. And if you've ever seen anything that the Hat Show print shop produces, it's amazing. It's 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 uh, it's it's just classic. It's super cool. So I'm really excited to offer that to the first thousand people who order the book. So if you want information on how to pre-order the book, it releases October the sixth. Uh, you can just go to lastingimpactbook.com, and of course, everything will be in the show notes as well. So lastingimpactbook.com, and you can find it there. Just remember that all this awesome pre-launch bonus stuff goes away October 6th. So make sure if you're going to order and you want those bonuses, uh, do it today. Lastingimpactbook.com. Okay, now let's get to your questions. So here we go. We got the first question, and it is coming to us from Estevan Turgillo. 
That's via Twitter, Estevan Turgillo. And he asks, how and what do you communicate outside your leadership circle? I think that's a great question. And this is, this is probably true whether you lead a small church, a big church, but you know, communication is a big job for a leader. So I have uh, an executive team at the church where I serve, Connexus Church. We also have a leadership team, a staff team, an elder team. And then we also have uh, a ministry team representative team. I think it was uh, Rick Warren who said years ago that the way great leaders communicate change is through concentric circles. And so that's how I've tried to think about it over the years. So I have a lot of dialogue with people who are just on that inner circle, you know, executive team uh, with the elders to a certain extent. Our elders don't micromanage. They just kind of are guardrails. But, you know, I'll have big conversations with them uh, when we're facing key turning points. But most of the day to day is processed with our executive team. So that's just me and my two key leaders. Uh, we work on big issues with our leadership team. And then with the staff, we, we do push down um, decision making. So basically, our staff don't have to go for permission all the time. They don't need a committee's permission if they're operating within the ambit of their budget and also our mission, vision, and strategy. Then they can just do what they want. I mean, that's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to implement the mission. So they don't need my permission. They don't need leadership team's permission. They don't need executive team's permission. As long as what they're doing is within the the scope of our mission and vision and budget, then they can go ahead and do it. So um, that cuts down on a lot of communication because basically you're not having to wait for committees to come back with decisions, et cetera. And it, it helps your church just stay lean and nimble and fast. So that's what we do. So how do we communicate outside of that circle? Well, we have a group because we're North Point strategic partner called MTRs, and that stands for Ministry Team Representatives. And four times a year, we get them together and we tell them sort of what's going on, update them on the status of the church, and we also get input on key issues moving forward. Beyond that, we just want to make sure that our volunteers are well-informed. So the staff, you know, if you're in charge of kidsmen, you make sure your kidsmen people know key concepts. Our group leaders know key things that we're working on. And so I look at it in terms of concentric circles. And then every once in a while, of course, you make an announcement. Now, where I think a lot of congregations go wrong is they look for input from all sources, like from the congregation. What do you think we should do? Critical, critical mistake. And that's why I think it's so important to make the decisions. We make most of them, you know, individually. We're operating within our mission and vision. And so then the communication of the change happens through your your area or your department. If you've got to go beyond the mission or vision, it will go up to sometimes executive team or to the eldership or, or just in a one-on-one discussion with someone else. But that's how we communicate change in concentric circles. And when we're doing a big change, we will often start one-on-one just to make sure all the key players, particularly in those inner circles, know. And, you know, the higher up you go, the more input people have. And then eventually you get to the point where maybe you're just telling volunteers and you say, hey, I just wanted you to be the first to know. Or sometimes, you know, you'll gather people together and say, hey, we got a big thing coming down the pipe. We just want to tell you before you hear it publicly. And then, of course, there's public communication. And you can do that on a Sunday morning or via email, you know, to key leaders or, or, or via blog post or whatever you want. So that's kind of how we communicate change. So I really hope that helps, Estevan. And now we're going to go to a question that got uh, left for me from Jason McCutcheon. Hey, Jason McCutcheon here from Laurentian Wesleyan Church in North Bay, Ontario, Canada, just a little north of you, Carrie. Uh, I've heard it said that to be an effective pastor, you need to think like a rancher, not a shepherd. I think you've even said that. Well, I see the wisdom in the statement. Is the goal to no longer be hands-on at all and just to coordinate other people? 
If so, how can you effectively lead other people into ministries that you're no longer actively doing? Love the podcast. Talk to you later. Well, thank you so much, Jason, and a shout out to all our Canadian listeners, of whom I would be one. That is a great question. I really appreciate it. And the quote actually about shepherd versus rancher comes from a book written by Carl George and Warren Bird a long time ago in the mid-90s called How to Break Church Growth Barriers. And that is, I think that is a must read for every church leader. It's just so good. Yes, it's a couple decades old, but it is so, so good. And their point is that most churches never break the 200 attendance barrier simply because most pastors are unwilling to give up personal pastoral care. In other words, they want to care for every sheep. And their challenge is to stop thinking like a shepherd and start thinking like a rancher. Okay, how are you going to care for a thousand sheep or 2000 sheep? And how does that go? And I've been on that journey personally. When I read the book, you know, we had 50 people in our church. I was just starting out. It was really easy to care for everyone personally. Now we have 2,200 people, 2,300 people who call our church home and over 1,000 people who attend on the weekend. So that's just challenging to do that. So I've personally had to go through the journey of learning how to let go of pastoral care and individual care. And, and of course, with a couple thousand people who call your church home, I don't even know everybody's name anymore. And I try very hard to learn everyone's name, but it's just, it's difficult to do that. So I think, I think the key is how do you lead people when you're not directly involved? Uh, number one, you need to lead your leaders. You need to lead them really well. And so I had to, you know, train the church early on. I remember five years into my leadership, I was just kind of saying, okay, guys, you know, the day is coming very, very soon where I'm not going to be able to care for everybody. You might be in the hospital. I'm not going to be able to visit, but we're going to set up a system where, you know, if you get to be part of a small group, a community group, uh, you will have people around you to care for you. And that, in fact, is what happens. And then I guess for the people who don't want to serve, because serving communities, like we have, I don't know, 500 volunteers at our church or more, and uh, volunteers do a great job of caring for each other. In fact, I ran into somebody yesterday at our church who uh, had a, a brain tumor, a very serious brain tumor develop. And all the people who served with her in our preschool ministry cared for her and visited her in the hospital. And she was just thrilled for that. So we just taught the congregation to care for each other. And so when people serve, they get cared for. When people are in small groups, they get cared for. And, you know, that's not a perfect system, but but it's better than no system. And uh, if you're not in a group, then, you know, you're kind of on your own for that. And I think people understand, they, they assume the risk. But other than that, you know, I've got to focus on key leaders. So these days at a church our size, I'm focusing on the health of our eldership team, the health of our staff, and particularly our leadership team and executive team. That puts me in about the ambit of 20 people. I can care for 20 people really, really well. And I think if your team is healthy at the top and they're aligned and they're doing what they need to do, then I'm kind of their pastor. And if we're healthy at the top, then we're healthy throughout. If we're unhealthy at the top, then we're going to be unhealthy throughout. So I really focus on that. And then how do I lead other people? I think you lead by vision. I think you lead by example. And I think you lead uh, simply by the way you live your life. And they sort of, you know, it's Paul who said, you know, imitate me. And uh, I don't, you know, really think everything I do should be imitated, by ho- but hopefully you're leading at a level um, where there's just you know, people follow you because you're a leader and and they follow your example. And the other thing to remember is it just doesn't all depend on you. There will be a day where you are not the senior pastor of your church. There'll be a day where other people are doing your job. And so you've got to make sure that people that you hire, your staff team and your key volunteer leaders 
um, lead as well. And I think if you talk to a lot of people who maybe serve in children's ministry or student ministry, they would see our children's pastor or our student pastor as as much of their leader as they would me. I mean, yeah, they see me as the overall leader, but they have a much closer relationship with the staff member or the key volunteer who's leading them. And again, as long as those key volunteers and key people are aligned, then you've got a great organization. So that's how I would handle that. And I would really encourage you to buy the book, um, How to Break Church Growth Barriers by Carl George and Warren Bird. So on to the next question, and this one comes in from Derek Kretchen via Twitter, and he says, do you have any preaching scorecards for development? Communicators on our staff at Bethel Church NC uh, want to preach better. So a shout out to Bethel Church NC, and a great question, Derek. So yeah, we don't really have a scorecard per se. We do a review every week of the weekend service. We do that on Tuesdays at our church, at Connexus Church. And the sermon is evaluated by a team of people who are in that meeting, which at this point is mostly staff. And we just ask three questions. Was the message memorable, helpful, and engaging? Those are our criteria. Now, we borrowed those from North Point because we're North Point's strategic partner. And I think that's good. Was it relevant, helpful, and engaging? And then I ask another question, which is, okay, if it was, why? If it wasn't, why not? Because, you know, it's one thing to sit around and go, oh, that was a bad message, or hey, that one didn't seem to connect. But it's like, okay, but why didn't it connect? And I'll give you a good example. So I was trying to figure out a few weeks ago why I wasn't happy with my delivery in a certain series I was doing. I just, I didn't seem comfortable. I just didn't, I, I didn't think I was given my best. So I actually sat down and I watched the message in my office with one of the guys who's on my executive team. And I said, okay, watch this. And then I had a message I did somewhere else that I thought was better. And now watch that. What's the difference? And he and I isolated it. It's like, oh, look at your body language. Oh, listen to your tone of voice. Oh, look at that. That's why you weren't, that's why it sounded like you weren't comfortable. Then I went back the next week and I just remembered, okay, don't shuffle my feet that way. Um, Make sure I'm intentional about how I use my voice. It was much better, much, 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 much better. And so you got to understand why it worked or why it didn't work. Now, in terms of message preparation, Derek, here are five questions that I use on a regular basis. I've used them for years. They are actually found in the appendix of Andy Stanley and Lane Jones' book, Communicating for a Change. So if you know that book, and I know a lot of you do, the main part of the book is about uh, a five-fold structure, I, we, God, you, we. If that doesn't mean anything to you, don't worry about it, get the book. If it does, you'll know what I follow, but you know what I mean. But at the very end, um, Andy actually has a short appendix that I just find as helpful or, okay, honestly, more helpful than the book itself. And it's five questions that he runs us through. And I use those five questions all the time to help me. And the five questions that every message should answer are these. What do I want them to know? Okay, what is the single point? What is the single point I'm trying to communicate? That's great. You know, if, if you can't answer that, I promise you, your church has no chance of remembering what you're trying to say. So you got to boil it down to a single point. What do I want them to know? And then more importantly, why do I want them to know, know it? Why do I want them to know it? Why is it even important? Because if you can't answer the why, then people can listen to 40 minutes of you talking about something and have no idea why it even matters to their lives. So that will often create the tension, you know, that this is, this is something that is going to change your marriage. This is something that could change your life. This is why you don't connect with God, and I'm going to tell you about it. And then you're like, okay, now I'm interested. So what do I want them to know? Uh, what do, why do I want them to know it? 
And then the next two questions are similar. What do I want them to do? And then why do I want them to do it? So what do I want them to do? That's the application. It's like way too often have we gone to church or preached messages and it's just like, okay, now I know something. Yeah, yeah. But how are you different? And so you need to figure out application. So what I want you to do this week is to forgive somebody that you need to forgive. What, what I want you to do this week is I want you to track down, write down your negative thoughts, you know? And, and so, so you want them to do something. It needs to be tangible and specific. And then again, why do you want them to do it? Why do you want them to do it? Oh, because if you do this, if you do this, you'll be free from the hate and the grudge that you felt for that person and your heavenly father will forgive you. Oh, well, now I'm motivated to do it. Or I want to keep track of my negative thoughts because I can't capture and surrender to God what I don't even understand. So I, I can't take my thoughts captive if I don't specifically know what I'm thinking about. That, that was from a recent message that I preached. But, you know, why do I want them to do it? Because this will give you a chance to change your mind, which could change your life. Okay, well, that's interesting. And then finally, um, how can I make it memorable? How can I make it memorable? What can I do? Is there a prop I can use? Is there a phrase that's catchy that people will remember? Is there some art on social media we can put up during the week to help punctuate the message? I mean, what can I do to make it memorable? So those are the five questions. What do I want them to know? Why do I want them to know it? What do I want them to do? Why do I want them to do it? And how can I make it memorable? That's out of the appendix of communicating for a change, which I think is gold. Thanks so much for your question, Derek. Now on to Hendrik, all the way from South Africa. And a shout out to all of our South African listeners. Hendrik. Hi, this is Hendrik from Gauteng, South Africa. I have a question regarding succession of leadership. I've got three questions pertaining to that. Number one, uh, how do you plan a succession plan? Secondly, I'd like to hear your thoughts on a leader staying in the organization or church after stepping down. And then thirdly, how do you suggest the new leader handle the situation of having a leader, a previous leader, involved in the church or organization? Thank you very much. I look forward to having these questions answered. Hendrik, that's a great question and a tough one. Okay, in terms of pastoral succession planning, I would suggest you read William Vanderblumen and Warren Bird's book called Next, Pastoral Succession That Works. It seems to be a Warren Bird book day, but deservedly so. He's written over 25 extremely helpful books. So thanks, Warren, for that. But anyway, that's kind of a manual on how to plan for pastoral succession. So I'd recommend that. Uh, Second thing I would do is answer your question about staying as a leader in the organization. That is exceptionally difficult. Honestly, almost never works. Almost never works. Because here's what happens. A leader who led something for so long often has a hard time letting go. So if you're going to stay in the organization, I think you're going to have to be very, very honest about whether you can let go of leadership. And I don't know whether it's you or whoever, but I'm just saying you. Like whoever that leader is needs to be very, very clear and intentional about how uh, and, and whether he or she is going to let go. So they just have to let go and they have to let the new leader lead. And they need to let the new leader lead in different directions. I mean, the new leader is going to bring a fresh team and a fresh approach and a fresh strategy. And the retiring leader or the leader who's stepping back needs to be 100% okay with that in two important spheres, publicly and privately. 
publicly, you can't say a word. You cannot criticize that leader. And you have to be careful because sometimes even your silence can be taken as criticism. So it takes an incredible amount of character on the part of the leader to be able to do that. And then secondly, privately, you can't publicly say, oh, I think, you know, new leader X is doing a great job. And then privately sit down with, you know, an elder or somebody and go, well, I think they're doing horrible. I mean, you just, it's a vow of silence and a vow of support and you have to be there. And I think it's entirely dependent on a leader's character. Usually it doesn't go well because inevitably leaders have a hard time letting go. They end up criticizing their successor, even if they do it privately or with, you know, a few trusted people. And it's just, it becomes a train wreck. It's just no good for anybody. It's no good for the church. It's no good for the leader. I think it could work though, if you have a leader with very, very high character and that character would also need to be very, very strong in the new leader. I mean, you need a very secure leader who can have the old leader around and that leader in a similar way would have to be very respectful of and, uh, you know, very, what, what would I say? How would I put it? Just have really a really strong relationship with that former leader to the point where it's a it's a relationship of mutual respect, mutual encouragement and mutual support. So I think that would take incredible character on both parts. Now in terms of the role for the previous leader, I mean it could just be hey, I'm attending with my family and leading a small group, that could be it. But if there's a staff role or some kind of other role, I think it would have to be in the area of that leader's gifting. And, and then that leader would have to be very clear that they don't overstep those bounds ever. Okay, that's all I do. That's all they do. One, one of the reasons that um, succession is so difficult, and I think it was uh, William Vanderblumen who talked about this, is that a lot of leaders, when they retire or step back, they just don't have anything better to go to. Um, maybe they were hanging on because financially they couldn't afford to retire, or maybe they haven't got like an exit plan. I'm going to preach as an itinerant preacher or, you know, I'm going to take up sailing or, or you know, whatever they're going to do. And in the absence of having something positive to go to, all they feel is this incredible sense of loss. And so you would want to make sure uh, whether that's something through the church or something in life as a whole or outside ministry that that leader's got something to occupy their attention. So that's my attempt to answer that, but do have a look at uh, next uh, pastoral succession that works. So we're going to go uh, next to Kirk McKenzie from Australia. This seems to be like uh, International Leader Day. So Australia, shout out to you. Kirk. Hi, Kerry. Two questions. One, I seem to be the only review on Australian iTunes. Uh, and I'm not sure if that's if I'm getting something wrong at my end. Uh, thanks for the podcast. Second question is, I feel like in our church and in a lot of churches, we sort of buy into consumerism and we don't critique consumerism very well. And so I think a lot of the frustration with sort of lack of maturity or discipleship perhaps stems from that. I'd just love to uh, hear a podcast with somebody who's got a fair bit of experience with it. Thanks, mate. Yeah. Kirk, love the iTunes question. That's awesome. Uh, you should not be alone in Australia. In fact, I was just checking the stats, but in this first year of the podcast, there have been just shy of 500,000 downloads. So just an idea about the audience, because it does feel like International Day here, which is awesome. About 400,000 of the downloads, so about 80% of all listeners live in the United States. About 10% live in Canada. There were like 41,000 downloads in Canada. Australia, believe it or not, was third. 
with like almost 9,000 downloads. So clearly, either you download a lot or there's a lot of other Australians listening, and I suspect it's the second. So guys in Australia, let's, uh, let's leave some iTunes love. Shall we do that? That would be good. UK, by the way, is third. South Africa is fourth. So there you go. And then it kind of drops off from there. So I uh, love the fact that so many people who listen uh, are from all over the world. That's, uh, that's kind of cool. So now onto your question about spiritual maturity. Yes, 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 I agree. And consumerism is a problem. I have written about that. And it's kind of weird because, you know, we attract people in with, um, you know, uh, compelling messages and series and services, and we live in a consumer culture. But, you know, I think the central call of Christianity is to die to yourself. That's what it is. It's to die to yourself and to rise to Christ and through Christ. So, yeah, uh, maybe there's a bit of bait and switch going on there, I think, in some churches. But here's what we do at our church. I mean, we're, we're unapologetic about the fact that Christianity is a, is a message about dying to sin and dying to self and living to Christ. And we try to model that in our structure. So here's some things that we do to battle consumerism. Uh, we are, again, unapologetic about asking people to serve and to give and to invite their friends, all of which are outward focus. So giving says, okay, my life is not about me. Uh, I am going to take what God gave me and give it back, and I'm going to give to others, and I'm going to be sacrificial about that. That is an anti-consumeristic message. Second thing, uh, we really focus on serving. We serve in the community. We serve at food banks. We serve in other places, and we serve one another in love in the church. And our church is actually, we, you know, our mission statement is to be a church that unchurched people love to attend. And so our church fundamentally is not about us. It's about others, and it's about inviting others into the love there is that we've experienced in Jesus Christ. And so we tell people to invite their friends and we design the services uh, in a way that make it accessible for their friends. So the other thing we do is community group. And I think community can be a little bit selfish if you're like, I want my group for me. Uh, That's pretty selfish. But if you look at it as a way to serve and and to help others, it, it can be a very selfless thing too. So those are four things that we are doing to try to battle consumerism in our church. I really hope that helps. Okay, we're going to jump back onto social media, take some questions. Dave Baldwin says, hey, Carrie, when you fill up Sunday morning, do you start Saturday p.m. or go satellite? Great question. Well, on the whole subject of multi-site, probably the best guy to listen to is Jim Tomberlin, and he was on episode 43 of the podcast. So flip back to that, have a listen. He's got a lot of gems, and a lot of churches are going multi-site. I would say the thing you have to think about in multi-site is it's not twice as complicated, it's three or four times as complicated. Uh, You need structures, you need reproducibility, you need the ability to think, okay, how can I, what are we focused on? What, What are we doing that is reproducible at two sites, three sites, four sites, and so on? So it's a little more complex, and I would really say dig deeper in a multi-site. And then every multi-site church, we're multi-site church, but every multi-site church leader I talk to says, man, they would have more sites if they had more leaders. And so you've got to think about your leadership development pipeline, because it's one thing to have a bunch of people who want your church, but it needs to be led well. And so you've got to have a way of developing and reproducing leaders to do that. Saturday night, uh, my bias is to go three on Sunday. So right now we're running two services on Sunday morning. Our new service times we switched this year are 9 and 1030. And we're doing that at both of our locations. If and when we fill up, I would move to a noon service. That's what I would do. I would do 9, 1030 and noon. Um, just because here's why I've done a Saturday night service before. This is my opinion. It's just my opinion, but it's ask Carrie, not ask somebody else doing one service on Saturday night. You look at it and go, Oh, that's just another hour. No, it's not. 
I mean, you basically lose half to three quarters of your Saturday. And unless you're going to give your staff one or two additional days off, it basically means you truncate your work week. So you're doing like Thursday, Friday off, and then working Saturday and Sunday and Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Or if you go with one day off model, it means, you know, you're giving up Friday and it's just, it just gets tiring. And, you know, to stay an extra hour, it's truly an hour on Sunday. It's more like half a day on Saturday. So that's my bias. Those are my thoughts, but definitely explore multi-site before you go to it. Okay, back on Twitter. Love to hear advice on launching two services. This is from Matthew Thrower. Matthew, thanks for the question. Two services are great. They're fairly easy. Um, I've always, almost always done multiple services. I say easy. Everybody in Kidsmen just winced and went, no, it's not. You should come down here. Yeah, you got to have good volunteers. You got to have great people around you. You've got to make sure that you can staff those services or just decide, you know, this is going to be adults only. We're not going to do Kidsmen or we're only going to offer preschool. We're not going to offer elementary or student or whatever you want to do, but sort of make those decisions ahead of time. And uh, I, I think, you know, when we launched Connexus, we didn't quite have enough people to do a second service, like everybody would have fit into each location in one service, but we launched with two. First of all, because we believed we were going to need two at some point, and that in fact is true. But also because we wanted our volunteers to be able to invite their friends. And we thought that was a really, really high value for us. So, I mean, we started with like 30 people at one of, you know, the first service and people were like, wow, couldn't we all fit in at the 10? And we're like, yep, you could, but one day you won't be able to. And we want you to be able to invite your friends. So I think two services are great. I mean, the old stats on that, I don't know how true it is anymore, but the the stats that have been widely quoted for a long time would suggest that if you offer a second service, your overall attendance will automatically go up by 20% because you gave people another option. In other words, hey, my shift starts at 11. I can't make it for the 10 o'clock, but I could do the you know 9 o'clock or 8.30 or whatever. We used to have 8.30 services. I do not recommend it. That's why we moved to 9 and 10.30, but it was just what we had to do in the situation we were in, given the, the times we had the facility available. So anyway, uh, long story short, I think you could, but you you know, if, if, if you're a quarter full, do not launch a second service. That's when you're starting to get like 70, 80% full. I think you could look at launching a second service. Okay, back to our voicemail. We are going to listen in to Zach Verbracken. Zach, hit us up. Hey, Carrie. What is something that as a senior pastor, when a staff pastor of yours, whether it be a kid's pastor or a youth pastor, what is something that when they do that thing, it just fills you with pride as their senior pastor. Thanks, Zach. And a shout out to everybody from Missouri, Kansas City. That's awesome. Uh, that's where Zach is from. So what fills me with pride? Man, lots of things. I'll tell you a few that came to mind. One, um, leaders who take initiative. I just love self-starters. I love people who see opportunities, who see problems, who tackle them, who don't need to be told what to do, who, who take new initiatives. I just... I think that's great. So taking initiative, definitely something that fills me with pride and makes me happy. Uh, another thing, solves a problem nobody else could solve. I mean, as a leader, if you're a senior leader listening to this, you know you get paid to solve the problems nobody else can solve. That's what I always say. But I love it when leaders come to you and say, hey, we had this problem already dealt with. That's awesome. And sometimes that's impossible. I mean, they need your input or the input of a team. So the other thing I really like is when they come not just with a problem, but with three or four different solutions. It's like, okay, we could try this. We could try that. Thought about this. Not sure it's a good idea. What do you think? 
super helpful. Another thing uh, just takes full responsibility. A leader who just says, you know what, I'm going to take full responsibility. I made a mistake. I blew it. This is not going well. I'm responsible. Uh, I'm going to do what it takes to make it right. That That is awesome. We live in a culture of blame. I look for leaders who love responsibility and who take it fully. Another thing, uh, leaders who are willing to fuel momentum. I mean, if they're always looking to you as a senior leader for like, hey, what are you doing to make this thing grow? Eh, uh, yeah, not really. I mean, hey, it's my job to really help, but uh, leaders who are good enough that in their own area, they're just killing it in student ministry, they're killing it in children's ministry, they're killing it in groups. I just, I just love that because often one area of the church can ignite other areas. So I look for leaders like that who are great. And then, and then leaders who develop leaders with a white hot sense of passion. In other words, it's one thing to be really passionate about what you do. It's another thing to have a team that's contagious with passion. So when I see uh, young leaders doing that or other leaders doing that, that, that really, really excites and fuels me. Okay, so back to social media for another question. This one comes from Josh Fortney. And Josh asks this, he says, what are the most effective ways to recruit non-staff, not just training leaders and leading leaders, but how to recruit? I think your biggest friend is a massive vision. You need a vision so clear and so compelling and so urgent that the best leaders flock to it. You're, you you got to be trying to solve a problem. Like, so for example, for us, we have over 300,000 unchurched people. We are trying to crack that nut. How do we reach 300,000 unchurched people within a 30-minute drive of our locations uh, with the gospel of Jesus Christ? And what kind of church do we need to be to be able to do it? You know, that almost seems like an impossible vision. Man, high-capacity leaders are attracted to vision. Now, you can explain the what of the vision. This is what we're trying to reach. But then, then you've got to explain the why. And so when you're talking about the why, you've got to talk about their friends and their family and their kids or their parents or their coworkers or their neighbors and their role in the story. And when you start to connect the dots for people, great things happen. So I think it starts with a high sense of, of, of vision and the why behind the what. Another way that you can really attract high-capacity leaders is to ask existing high-capacity leaders to recruit other high-capacity leaders. People respond to personal asks. So if you've got somebody that you're looking at at your team and you think they're great, you think they're superstars, they know some people, you know, birds of a feather flock together, ask them, hey, can you ask two or three of your friends to come alongside and serve with you or serve in a new area? I think that's another way to do it. A third way, and this is this is going to be a little bit you know, it's going to sound anticlimactic, but it's not. You just need to be hyper-organized. I mean, there are so many people, high-capacity people, who get recruited into organizations that are just poorly led. And when they're poorly led, your high-capacity people run away. They just do. And so I always say to our staff, one of the best things you can do is be hyper-organized so that when your volunteer shows up, the things that are supposed to be ready are ready. Now, that doesn't mean you, you, you do everything for them and they just, you know, press play. But they love a high challenge too. You know, one of our lighting guys, we got a new lighting console a few months ago. He's a young guy, he's like 22, 23. And he did a great job. We did a new set on Sunday and uh, he helped set that up. And I heard him say, as I was leaving on Sunday, he said to our production staff guy, he's a volunteer. He said, I think I'm going to come back in this week, midweek, and I'm going to reprogram the board just to make it better. Well, first of all, there was nothing wrong with what he did on Sunday. It was fantastic. 
but I love leaders that just want to make it better. And you got to find guys like that. And you got to be hyper organized because if we weren't set up for him, his motivation, like if the building isn't opened, if, if we don't give him good gear, his motivation drops significantly. But when you are organized and you create a great environment for leaders to succeed, they're, they're going to want to succeed and you'll attract some high caliber people. So I hope that helps a lot. Okay, next question. This one from Facebook from Fred Baker. Fred says, I love this question. He used to be the pastor had his phone number in the church directory and only members had access to that. Today, however, people can DM, email, text, tweet, etc. You any time of day with any type of question. How do you manage all the ways people can contact you directly without being available 24-7? Ha ha. That's a great question. Well, some of that goes right back to expectations and maybe I'll start there. I just think, and this goes back to where we started in the podcast, when you have a larger church and you're over 200 people, you just have to say, hey, I'm not going to be there for everybody and just kind of, you know, politely cast that vision. And I think you eventually get to a size where people know, hey, it's going to be hard to get on your calendar. Uh, Your church may grow to a size. And I mean, I had to move to this a few years ago where it's just everybody kind of goes through my assistant. So you have to set up some guardrails. Otherwise, you're just not going to have time to work on your messages. You're not going to have time to lead your team. You're not going to have time to lead your board or your elders. You're just not going to. So, you know, I'm one of those people who believes you should not be accessible. You should be only accessible to the right people. And the right people for me are my key 20 leaders. They have my cell phone number. Nobody else does. They just, you know, very few people have my cell number. That may be old school, but like, I just... I don't want to be texted and called day in and day out. If you've got my cell number, it's because I think you should have it. And because I've got an interaction with you that only I can fulfill. Because otherwise, you end up batting defense and it's like, oh, talk to our pastoral care guy. Oh, talk to this person. Oh, talk to that person. And I mean, you shouldn't be doing that if you want to be efficient with your time. Uh, the other the other thing I would say is, yeah, you can be accessed. But I mean, I turn off all notifications on my phone. Uh, If you message me on Facebook, often I'll make you wait um, just because it's not high priority. I mean, I have a private and a public email inbox and I always thought I'd never go to one. But just with the volume of correspondence I'm managing these days, you know, same thing as my cell phone. The people who need to connect with me, not connect with the church, but with me and what I can do, uh, they have my private email. Everything else goes public. So those are some ways I've done it. And then and then I think, you know, if you read Cloud and Townsend on boundaries, uh, often the problem isn't with the people, it's with the pastor. It's like, you just, you know, I'm not saying you do, Fred, you probably have great boundaries, but, you know, a lot of pastors just have terrible boundaries. They need to be needed. And so they're telling people, here's my home phone number, here's my cell phone, call me whenever. I don't say that. Um, you know, don't call me whenever. Don't, don't call my home. When I'm home, I'm home. And if I want you to call my home, I'll give you my home number. Now, you know, that doesn't sound very pastoral or very merciful, but I think it's just true. Or you're going to burn out or you're going to have a very angry family or you're going to have a very poorly served church because when you're spread in a million different directions, you're just going to do a bad job. So I don't follow a lot of people on Twitter just because I don't want people to be able to DM me. Uh, I disable as much as I can on Facebook so that people can't message me. I have a public email that my assistant helps me manage. I have a private email that goes directly to me and I don't give out my cell number. So 
there you go. Okay, I know that's not exactly the nicest answer, but it's a true answer. And it really leads into probably the most frequently asked question I get, which is, uh, well, Zach Verbracken once again gave a pretty decent rendition of this. I get it almost every week. So, Zach, take it away. Hey, Carrie, this is Zach Verbracken in Kansas City. And I was just wondering, like, what's your weekly routine for producing content? Like, how do you not fry your brain? Is there any practices to maximize your creativity or, you know, manage your creativity and energy and your ideas? What What is your process for producing that content as often as you do and as high quality as you do? Well, Zach, thanks so much for that question. It is the number one question I get asked. I seem to get asked every single week. And the answer is actually a little bit related to what I just told Fred, that you know, I try to limit access and I try to make sure that I focus on the things that only I'm good at. And I've just, you know, become more and more focused in what I do over the last five or six years. And part of that is understanding, okay, where do I bring the most value? And these days, the area that I think it connects as church, I bring the most value in is in content creation, in rallying people around a common mission and vision and keeping our team healthy. And so I focus my time on that, which frees up other people to do all the other things. And then, but how do I get this all done? Podcast, blog, speaking, et cetera, et cetera. Great question. Well, uh, first thing, start early, just start early. Uh, I get up fairly early, usually somewhere between four and six in the morning four during busy seasons, maybe 4.30, five on a fairly consistent basis if I can get to bed on time. But I've been pushing it to about six lately because for the last few months I've been experimenting with trying to get, you know, close to eight hours sleep every night and it's making me feel better. So sometimes if I don't get to bed till 10, I will uh, get up around six just to make sure I get seven and a half, eight hours of sleep. And and sometimes I find, you know, you're dragging yourself through the day or you're really energized for your day and sleep makes a big difference. So I'm trying to stop cheating sleep. So those, those are things, but start early because what you'll discover is that the world is very quiet at 6 a.m. I do my devotions. Uh, I'll usually have breakfast, a high protein breakfast. I'll take some omega-3s. I know that kind of sounds like gimmicky, but it is known to really help you think better. And uh, I'll try to get my biggest content chunks done before 10 a.m. So uh, I'll have my devotion time. I might work on a blog post. Uh, I'll do some writing. I'll work on a series. And by 10 a.m., I find my best creative energies are gone. So and and usually by 10 a.m., the rest of the world is kind of waking up and getting into the office and answering emails. So I've, I've kind of, you know, swallowed off some big chunks before everybody else is up. So that helps an awful lot. Then I'll jump onto email. Um, you know, I'll keep working on projects if, if it's a writing day. And uh, I'll, I'll take a break for lunch. I will make sure that I eat something that's fairly high protein. Um, I have not been as good at getting on my bike this summer as I would like to have been. I've got about 1,600 kilometers in. That's about 1,000 miles. Uh, last year, I was closer to 2,000 kilometers or maybe... 1400 miles. So I, I feel bad about that. But often I'll, I'll work in some exercise, either not usually first thing in the morning, but in the afternoon for a break just to refresh or, or in the early evening. And uh, and then I'll keep at it till about four o'clock, usually doing admin. And, you know, if I have to do a meeting, I'll do some meetings. And then uh, I'm kind of done for the day by that point. 
I'll go home, hang out with my family, do some dinner. I might work for another hour in the evening, but again, my productivity is really low. And then I get back up and I try it again. I also work five or six days a week. That's something not everybody does, but you know, our staff often takes Friday and Saturday off to get ready for Sunday. I will usually work on a Friday just to uh, try to keep all the balls in the air. And uh, I've gotten a lot better at saying no too. I just pick my meetings really strategically. I pick my assignments really strategically. So the stuff that I do counts. You can, you can do death by a thousand pinpricks as a leader. And I, I used to do that. I just try to avoid it. I'm like, I just want to focus on what I'm best at. The other thing I do is I employ teams. So obviously we have an incredible team at the church where I allows me to focus on what I'm best at. Uh, I also have a team for this podcast. So all I do is content. That's it. I don't do the production. Toby does that. Jessica does the show notes. Kevin sort of directs the overall direction of the podcast. And there are others who help out. Joanna does uh, project coordination. George helps out on projects. Sarah does some of the booking back at Connexus. So I just work on content and then I send it off and it magically appears. I don't even upload it to iTunes. So that was really important. Uh, Same with the back end of the blog. I mostly focus on content. Uh, Again, a team works on the rest. And and I think when you get to that point and you're producing the maximum amount of value that you can, it's amazing what you can produce. So some of that is just focus. Some of that is building teams around you. Uh, Some of that is, is actually knowing what you're best at and what you're not good at. Because I could spend time editing this podcast and, you know, this one was a little complex to produce, but... I wouldn't do as good a job as Toby would, and it's not what I'm best at. So I just try to focus on that. Couple more tips. A few years ago, I moved to a fixed schedule. I almost never have meetings on Mondays and Wednesdays, and that allows me to work on content all day long, which is great. And that's content for the church. And then sometimes early in the morning or at night, I'll work on content for the blog or the podcast. That just, otherwise my life would be full of meetings and I wouldn't get anything done, including the weekend message. So you just pre-decide, I'm going to work on it on Monday and Wednesday or whatever your days are. I'm going to do meetings on Tuesday and Thursday. And then if people, as they inevitably do say, hey, do you have time to meet? You can say, I don't, I'm sorry, but maybe I could meet, you know, next week or the week after. Or again, if you're ruthless about what you do, you just decide there's certain meetings you're just never going to have. And That allows you to be more productive on what you do and whatever you do. Now, the other thing you need is you need a really good system for organizing your thoughts. I use Evernote and I keep running files just on ideas that randomly occur to me when I'm out cycling, when I'm in the shower, when I'm cutting the grass, whatever I'm doing. I'll just jot those notes down or even dictate them into Evernote and then I don't lose them. And uh, finally, I listen to a lot of different sources. I listen to a number of different podcasts. I try to read fairly widely. I talk to a lot of leaders. And that's just always adding great ingredients to the stew. That becomes, I think, hopefully helpful content. Well, those are a few practices that have helped me. I hope some of that uh, can help you as well. And I'm sure you've got your own practices. Well, that about wraps it up for the very first Ask Carrie. I'll be back next Thursday with a second episode, a second bonus episode. And uh, I got a lot more questions for that. And if you've got a question that you want answered, just hit hashtag ask Carrie, that's C-A-R-E-Y on Twitter, or go to kerryneuhoff.com, click on the little button that says got a question and leave me a voicemail. I'll be happy to answer your question next week. I'm going to try to get to all of them and certainly the best of them. And that's next Thursday. The way you make sure you don't miss anything is to subscribe. We're back next Tuesday with a regular episode. I'm talking to Judd Wilhite in episode 54. And then we're back next Thursday with more of this. So thanks so much for listening in. 
Don't forget, all the pre-order bonuses are still available, including that amazing limited edition poster for my new book, Lasting Impact. And you can find more information at lastingimpactbook.com. In fact, off of that, you can order your copy. Thanks so much for being so awesome. If you love this, leave a rating and review on iTunes, on Stitcher, or on TuneIn Radio. And we'll talk to you again next week. Thanks so much. And I really do hope that this first attempt at Ask Carrie has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.